This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, home to more than 100,000 titles, including great science works. For Scientific American podcast listeners, Audible recommends A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson and The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality by Richard Panic. Audible is giving away a free audiobook just for checking them out. You can sign up for a one-month trial membership and the freebie at audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. That's audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on April 24th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. March 1914 saw the publication of the H.G. Wells book, The World Set Free, in which Wells mused about nuclear war and coined the term atomic bomb. World War I started a few months later, and World War II brought that bomb into existence. Graham Farmelow's latest book is called Churchill's Bomb, How the United States Overtook Britain in the First Nuclear Arms Race. Did you know that Churchill and H.G. Wells were buddies? Well, listen to Farmelow explain. He's usually based in London, but we caught up at Scientific American the last time he was in New York. First, Graham Farmelow, so great that you could come back and visit us again. The Strangest Man was the last book, and we talked about that at length, and that was terrific, and we had a great conversation. And now, Churchill's Bomb, How the United States Overtook Britain in the First Nuclear Arms Race. Now, I grew up hearing about the race between the U.S. and Germany for the atomic bomb. And this book tells a story that I doubt a whole lot of people know about the British efforts to get there first and what happened there. So tell us. Well, it's certainly true that um, when the uh, Manhattan Project, which people know is the, uh, the the project where the United States built the first uh, n- nuclear weapons, that was originally set to uh, build a weapon because of the great fears that Hitler uh, and his and his friends over in Germany would get the bomb first. Now, I've spoken to several people who worked on the Manhattan Project who said that that's what motivated them. They were absolutely terrified that this crazy, crazy man would get the bomb first. It's worth saying, just straight off, that James Conant, the uh, um, president of uh, Harvard in the uh, uh, 1940s, I, only, I heard a story which intrigued me, which isn't in the book, actually, and that is when they heard that Hitler was crazy enough to declare war on the United States uh, soon after Pearl Harbor, uh, that pe- people were saying, well, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of time now. And apparently Conant commented then, but we don't know whether they've got the bomb. Mm-hmm. It's very easily forgotten how uh, that possibility was taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hitler had this huge industrial machine. And he had German physicists were world-renowned. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much, you could say there's no one smarter than Heisenberg. Right. I mean, this isn't Heisenberg in Breaking Bad. This is, uh, <laughs> right. this, is the real this is the real Heisenberg. But, but no, you, it's a serious point. They had Heisenberg, they had others. Uh, nuclear fission was discovered in Hitler's capital on the eve of the war. This was one of the great... Uh, jokes that fate paid on humankind in the in the in the 20th century right on the eve of the second world war all right nuclear fission was discovered in berlin all right and as, as we're saying there was a real fear that 
if, if with luck and a following wind for, for, for Hitler, his scientists might have developed the bomb. And as you say, uh, the, uh, the the Manhattan uh, Project is popularly depicted as the response to that. If you look back at it, uh, you look back on the history of the project, it's, you could see that while important work was being done in, uh, uh, in 1940 and thereabouts in the United States, the first uh, really clear visualization that the bomb could happen was actually made in uh, March 1940, just before Churchill became uh, Prime Minister of of, of Great Britain. And there, two uh, scientists categorised by Britain then as enemy aliens, working in a a modest premises at the University of Birmingham, not Oxford or Cambridge, Mm -hmm. University of Birmingham, they, sitting around a table, much like the one, Steve, we're sitting around now, tumbled that you could actually make a nuclear bomb relatively speaking quite simply by taking two pieces of a particular isotope of uranium firing them together to form what's called a critical mass and forming a uh, something that could explode that was a critical insight made roughly speaking second week of march 1940 by uh by uh, otto fritsch and Rudolf Piles. Mm-hmm. All right. Ironically named Piles. Yes. Because yes, atomic yes. piles. Yes. Yes. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Now, the story of what they did with that um, insight, I- insight yeah. is, I think, an in- intriguing one. Put simply, they took it to their their boss, Mark Oliphant, and he said, "We've got to take this to to the, the government," All right, which he did, and. Speaking as a Brit, with all due uh, with with all due modesty, it was actually handled brilliantly. Right, the the scientists, with the wisdom of hindsight, behaved extremely well. They they knew this was a matter. This was not just of, of physics and, and science, but of uh, but of, of, of national importance. So they took it to the government. Right, and uh, to cut a long story short, they uh, the various committees were set up involving industrialists, first-class nuclear physicists. And by the time we get to 1941, the uh, when Churchill was prime minister, it was pretty clear from the deliberations of those scientists that a bomb could be made. And let me just remind people that in 1940, the U.S. isn't in the war, but Britain and Germany are already at war. They've been at war since the summer of 39. Absolutely right. Uh, and this was this was serious. I mean, this was all out war. Uh, uh, Britain and its empire, you must remember that Britain wasn't completely alone. It had a huge empire working, uh, working with it. But this was toe-to-toe uh, combat with a with a fanatic, Adolf, Adolf Hitler, with a tremendously well-equipped, well-disciplined uh, army. And uh, pretty much uh, Britain and its empire, they were, they, were, they were fighting for its life, so to speak. And uh, in, in the United States, there was uh, President uh, Roosevelt. There were a lot of people who didn't want the United States to get involved in what they saw as a kind of imperialist uh, struggle over in over in over in Europe. Now, uh, it, it must be kept in perspective. Uh, this was seen as extremely hypothetical. Mm-hmm. At that time, people had foreseen in plays and books and, and magazine articles, both sides of the Atlantic, the possibility of uh, of nuclear weapons. 
Right. It was first first mooted the idea of atomic bombs uh, uh, way back in 1914 by H.G. Wells, good friend of Churchill's. That's where Churchill probably would have first read about. Them. That's where the words came into our our language. But uh, it was very speculative in in, in wartime. That said. Even the people who uh, were scoffed at the idea that this this could be relevant to the war were pretty much pretty concerned that Hitler might have that, might get his hands on that weapon and his his first class scientists could build it. So it was balancing those things. Presumably, Wells would have understood that uh, from Einstein's work that a small amount of mass could theoretically be converted into a huge amount of energy. But he wouldn't have had any mechanism for that. That's right. That's right. He it, uh, Wells was truly brilliant, uh, not as a great novelist or as a great scientist, but he had a brilliant ability to take a small thread of a scientific idea and pull it and then dramatize it. And that's what he did uh, in uh, The World Set Free, mm-hmm. where he read about uh, the, uh, about the uh, a possibility of uh, huge amounts of energy, we now call it nuclear uh, energy, being made available and maybe making an explosive weapon out of it. And with his um, astonishing imagination, he just pulled that thread and came up with a scenario where that would be available. And Churchill almost certainly read about that because he read H.G. Wells' novels twice. He was a complete devotee of, of Wells. And they became... Uh, they were friends. Buddies who would hang out and discuss ideas together. That's absolutely right. They 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 were they were they they differed greatly on po- politics, but but Churchill had a huge regard for H. G. Wells' um, far sightedness in this. So you're right. Let's just go back again. Uh, we have this possibility. We're in ni- uh, we're in the, uh, the, the middle. We're in the thick of war, so to speak. And then, uh, in the, the for me, the big thing is that FDR offered Churchill an, uh, what, for all intents and purposes, was an equal harness collaboration in October 1941, right? This was, an, in my view, a very generous, uh, very generous offer. Britain at that time was way ahead of the game, actually. It was what they, 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 their top class scientists had worked out the bomb was viable. They got the basic idea and they developed it. But a, 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 there were even people there, good people, who thought that Britain could go it alone and build it. Later, that was proved to be, frankly, nonsense, right? It needed a tremendous investment that, frankly, would have been impossible in wartime in Britain. Churchill was uncharacteristically slow in responding. We know from the way he behaved that he did, despite his great reverence uh, for FDR, he resented the fact that America was not more forthcoming in its support of the British British war effort. Mm-hmm. He knew that in some ways Britain was ahead of America in military technology. So he was quite cheery about about this. And he held off for pretty well two months for replying for that incredibly generous offer. Not, not much later, Pearl Harbor, uh, F, uh, uh, um, the United States is in the war and under, quite understandably uh, uh, the United States puts the foot on the accelerator and starts the Manhattan Project. And then Churchill and his colleagues are playing catch-up, mm-hmm. right? There was a time when they were, where there was a good collaboration, but I think it's fair to characterize the uh, Amer- American attitude became, we're paying for it, we're paying for this stuff here, we've got the scientists, you know, it's going it's to cost zillions of dollars, right? Uh, th- this is our project, right? And by the end of 1942, the British scientists were pretty well frozen out 
Churchill, in my judgment, uh, d- uh, d- uh, took his eye off the ball on this one. It was only in about April 1943 that the Churchill of, the, of common um, perception, so to speak, comes into play when he, when he sees that he's being taken for a ride by the American uh, diplomats. In other words, they're just saying, oh, fine, you, you'll come along later, sooner or later. And he was not getting direct answers to his, why can't we work with you closely, as you originally said? Mm-hmm. In April 1943, he really is the, the commanding CEO, so to speak. He's commissioning reports. He's, you know, he's asking what's going on. And, uh, in, uh, August 1943, he finally negotiated a deal with FDR in Quebec that brought Britain into the Manhattan Project, so to speak, a modest number, about two dozen scientists working on the uh, Manhattan Project. But in my view, he could have got a much, much better deal if he'd responded earlier. He was getting science advice from a physicist he trusted who history has shown to perhaps be not the best judge of what was going on at the time. That's quite right. Uh, the, the scientist you're referring to is Frederick Lindemann, later Lord Charwell, but let's let's call him uh, Lindemann. The first thing to say is that uh, you're absolutely right. Lindemann was hugely influential on Churchill, and let's be really fair to Churchill here. The, the great thing about Churchill was he needed, he knew he needed scientific advice. Right now, that's not true of all politicians. I think it's fair to say. Right. I think that's really when you look at the U.S. House of Representatives, it's pretty obvious some of them don't think they need scientific advice. I'm a mere foreigner. I can't <laughs> comment. <laughs> but no, but to be fair, we must say that, uh, that, that let me just let me just segue just a second and say that to me, the most remarkable thing in writing this book right, is that Churchill did not find science easy. Right? He found mathematics incredibly difficult, but he knew he needed to know something about it. And when he was uh, a subaltern in India, he was sitting there in the in the torrid Indi- uh, Indian afternoons, reading about science, reading about Darwin, reading general science books. Right? He knew he needed to know about this stuff. And in the early 1920s, he was befriended by uh, by Lindemann, who took over from H. G. Wells as his main uh, influence. And as a result of that, uh, Churchill wrote some astonishingly far-sighted articles, right, that look forward to the possibility of harnessing nuclear weapons. Why don't we take a uh, take a little uh, detour for a second, because there's a fascinating article that Churchill wrote. Talk about that. For yeah, no, minutes. this is a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's hardly a detour. It's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, this was the article 50 years hence. Now, this was drafted by Lindemann. Uh-huh. Churchill uh, put sprinkled pixie dust on it, gave a Churchillian sheen to this thing, right? And what this article did, it looked ahead to what science and technology may do, particularly to warfare, in 50 years. And it was written in? 1931. 1931. 31, okay. Right? And it was a big success. And it was a big success on both sides of the Atlantic. Churchill regarded this as a, as a serious piece of journalism. And he actually said that. It's not just me making it up. He actually said that. Right? And in this, he's talking about lab cultivated meat. So we're talking about, what is it? The $250,000 hamburger. Right. Right? Now, uh, many people are saying, look, Churchill foresaw this. I don't think that's stretching it too far. He looked, he, he foresaw drones, what we now call drones. Uh-huh. You know, these machines t- going across the desert and across land. You know, uh, t- taking weapons remotely into uh, other other territories, but the thing that is particularly important for uh, 
this story uh, is that he realized right that nuclear energy was in principle tappable mm-hmm. what you need is a, a match to light the bonfire as he put it and he, he was absolutely right he was well briefed by Lindemann he knew that nu- if if we could get find a way of tapping nuclear energy what lie ahead well it could be uh, nu- uh, huge quantities of clean energy and it could, like, also could be nuclear weapons Right. And he wrote about this several times. This is the point. Not just there, but he wrote about it in newspaper articles read by millions of people. His final one was just, uh, I think it was eight weeks before the discovery of nuclear fission, mm. which is astounding. You know, that he, that he knew better than any other international politician that this was, uh, was in the offing, so to speak. And yet, as we've said, he was really quite slow for someone so well informed to, to be on the ball, which that to me is the most surprising thing about this. Uh, but he, but, but going back to our, our, our story, uh, he, he, he was very happy that he got those British scientists onto the Manhattan Project in 1943, but then again took his eye off the ball. And he, he was left with people like James Chadwick, the discoverer of the neutron, which was the little particle that did enable uh, that nuclear energy to be tapped. He was leading the British con- contingent with a house right next to Robert Oppenheimer uh, on, on the hill, what now we now call it Los Alamos. So what did Lindemann, what was Lindemann's view that dissuaded Churchill from engaging more fully earlier? Lindemann, Lindemann found it very tough to concede in those early 1940s that Britain couldn't do it. Remember, there was a, there not so, not that many decades before, Britain was the world's leading power. Mm-hmm. It was running the show, mm-hmm. right? And the balance of power had by then, of course, changed to the, uh, to the United States. And it was, it was tough to him to accept that this was a project so huge that Britain could not handle it on its own. Mm-hmm. And in my, my judgment, uh, that Britain, could have got a much better deal if they'd settled earlier and got got closer to the uh, the running of the project. But they didn't. But they did get back into the game somehow with a modest role uh, on on the uh, on the Manhattan Project. L- Lindemann was his judgment was always poor on. The, no, I shouldn't say always. It was normally poor uh, on this. He, he he was a very good scientist in his youth. There's no doubt about that. But like many scientists, when when uh, when he gets into to a position of uh, power, lots of administration, uh, he, he, his judgment on nuclear matters, which was brand new physics in those days, was not good. He even a few months before the first nuclear bomb was detonated, right? He doubted whether it would work. Right, where the physicists at the time were really extremely confident, mm-hmm. you know, he just somehow couldn't believe that nature could could allow this to be uh, could, could to, to be built. He wasn't alone in that, but I'm saying his judgment was not that brilliant in mm-hmm. in this field. Right, so although it, Ch- Churchill picked a scientist, in my judgment, it was a grave error of his to rely so heavily on Lindemann, right, for his uh, for his scientific input. In return for allowing the two dozen British researchers into the Manhattan Project, what was Britain going to get from that deal? Well, James Chadwick, discoverer of the neutron, he always thought that Britain played this right. And that he actually thought, to be fair, that America was generous to allow this, right? Because they were paying, they were picking up the tab, right? The idea was that Britain would learn from this gigantic 
project, colossal project, right? How to build weapons that they thought will, and indeed uh, exploit uh, nuclear energy for power after the war. That was the thinking, right? When it, uh, jumping ahead slightly after the war, uh, it, it, uh, the agreement that Churchill had struck with FDR, remember FDR died mm-hmm. shortly before the uh, end of the Second World War. Churchill was thrown out of office sh- uh, shortly before the uh, end of the war. That agreement came to nothing. And America went it alone, uh, in, uh, and uh, Britain was left to build its own weapon which was deeply, deeply hurtful to the British scientists who had initially briefed their American colleagues on that on that topic. Now, this arrangement between FDR and Churchill was completely extra-legal, wasn't it? <laughs> That's an interesting... Now, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but it was, it was certainly very secret. Hardly anyone knew about it. Yeah, I mean, the one yeah. that really didn't come to fruition, yeah. but, the, you know, the one where uh, the U.S. said... We'll go halfies on this, mm-hmm. and we'll share all the information. Um, usually, something like that would have to yeah. Yeah. pass some congressional scrutiny. Yeah. And and as you say, once Churchill's out of office and FDR is dead, there's nobody there to honor. I mean, that agreement didn't go through full bore anyway. B o r e, not b h o r or b o h r. I forget. I always forget how right. Boris spelled his name. Anyway, it's just really interesting that these two guys. You know, prime minister and president, but basically two guys without a a legal structure behind this idea of let's work together on this mega weapon and we'll just share all the information. Just decided to you know discuss it that way. Yeah, that's another bit, Steve. You're right. Uh, they, they treated they both both of them treated. Uh, uh, nuclear weapons as a as a uh, as a personal fiefdom. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Congress knew nothing about this expenditure. Parliament knew nothing about this expenditure. Now, well, hold on, we mustn't be completely naive here. You can't go, you're not going to be completely open about something as, as, as delicate as that. But I, but I think it's perfectly fair to say that they were exceptionally secretive, right? Very few people in, in Churchill Circle and, I mean, Harry Truman. Right. He came to the presidency having virtually no idea yeah. that the bomb was being made. And, of course, a few a few weeks later, he was having to decide whether to use it or not. Yeah. And actually part of that deal was that Churchill had to countersign that, right? They they, they had a say in each other's policy, which I, I suspect Congress would not have uh, not have accepted. But you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was highly questionable, and it fell apart. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think that that uh, that that, ag- that agreement was a particularly uh, uh, brilliant piece of work. But it did, in, for, to be fair to Churchill, it did get Britain back in, in have at least a toehold into that project. It's really important to, to, to stress one other way in which the Churchill and FDR might conceivably have done things uh, better. Although we was, we must always bear in mind the difficulty of handling a, top, a topic like this in in the uh, uh, in, in the fog of war, so to speak. And that is that uh, the great, arguably the greatest nuclear living scientist living at that time, Niels Bohr, was flown out of occupied Denmark. And this was in 1943. The famous story of his head being so large, allegedly, that they they were afraid they wouldn't be able to get the oxygen mask. He spent most of the journey unconscious for that reason. They couldn't, had, didn't have headgear big enough. So he arrived in Britain knowing nothing about this project and you can imagine it was completely wow. gobsmacked. Wow. He had said before that it was unthinkable 
that that a, that you could actually uh, separate that much of this very rare isotope to build this bomb. And here here was a, a, a country, almost entirely the United States, built, uh, setting up one of its one of its top five industries from scratch mm-hmm. to build this weapon. And the most of that work. Most of that industrial effort is going into separating out yeah. the U-235 yeah. from the U-238. No, it's, it's, it, it, even now, Frank, having written a book about this, yeah. it boggles my mind yeah. the size of that project. I mean, effectively, you had three countries working at it. Canada, United States, and Britain. Of course, America by far the biggest player. No question about that. But it was a gigantic project. And Bohr... Who is uh, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Dirac, the subject of my previous book? He said Bohr was the cleverest man, probably the cleverest man he ever met, mm. which is some going. Right, right. right? So he met a lot of clever guys. He met a lot of clever guys. Right. Um, Bohr had a unusual take on this, and it did shake up sh- London initially because that's where he was working work, work, uh, at the, in the offices of the uh, the guys run, uh, look, running this project. Right, but subsequently in the Manhattan Project, which he visited. Because he was, uh, he, he visited Oppenheimer and, and colleagues uh, at what we now call Los Alamos, and he's he he saw this as a hopeful project. He said, if if you have this gigantic uh, bomb, this could, crudely speaking, if the big countries have this, this could deter people from making war. Mm-hmm. And what he advocated very strongly was that Britain and America, mainly America should bring Stalin, Joe Stalin, an ally mm-hmm. uh, fighting Hitler, into this secret, broadly speaking, to avoid a, uh, a, a the, the obvious um, outcome of mistrust. Because I mean, they were allies, and Joe Stalin, according to Churchill and, and uh, FDR, knew nothing about this this project. That's what they believed, wrongly, as it turned out, because mm-hmm. of his spies. But that, but. Officially, Stalin knew nothing about this. Um, Bohr argued that, that for an, um, a, a greater openness uh, in this. Uh, Churchill saw him in May 1944, and Churchill treated him disgracefully, frankly. Mm. Uh, he was with uh, Lindemann. They met in Downing Street, and to quote Churchill, uh, he... Uh, Bohr and Lindemann were treated like schoolboys. It was shortly before D-Day. Churchill was very preoccupied, that's true to say. But he wanted nothing whatever to do with this uh, with, with this uh, intruder, this Danish intruder, who, to be fair, was not an articulate speaker. He wasn't Churchill's kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He, he was a mumbler. He was, uh, he was incoherent. Uh, but nonetheless, he had valuable things to say. And to be fair to Lindemann and to be fair to the other people, they repeatedly briefed Churchill on this that all right this guy is not he's he's not the Shakespeare of uh, of, of language but he has interesting powerful things to say Churchill wanted nothing to do with it later Bohr had an audience with F- FDR and FDR in his characteristic way was hail fellow well met wonderful idea and then completely uh, mm-hmm. uh, ignored him as it turned out we know that uh, there uh, when the, the terrible Cold War uh, that followed the Second World War, there was this appalling uh, arms race that was incredibly expensive for for, for all the, uh, the, the participants. And I have to say, my view uh, is that uh, if Churchill and FDR had been more thoughtful about war and taken a bit more notice, then the worst of that arms race could have been avoided. You can never be sure 
Stalin was a deeply suspicious person. It, you could never be absolutely certain. But I don't think it's to the credit of either Churchill or uh, or FDR that they paid so little attention when their scientists were saying, this guy had actually got something useful to say. We'll be back with more. By the way, remember the Audible special offer you heard about at the beginning of this episode? You can take advantage of it to get the full, unabridged, 14-hour and 20-minute recording of Churchill's Bomb by Graham Farmelow. Just go to audible.com slash cyan. Graham Farmelow and I will be right back in part two.